I can't sit like that. I have to sit like this. When your legs crossed? Like, yeah, I wanted to sit on my legs crossed. Hello, everyone. Perhaps we can start, and people who are late will join us. Um, they don't need to hear what I have to say. Um, well, thank you all for being here. And I'd like to thank Turiel Glawi and the whole team um, of 154 to always kind of insist on having a forum go along with the fair and the forum that's kind of independent uh, of what's going on down there and that uh, in which we can discuss any ideas we wish and into which everybody is welcome. Um, in particular, I'd like to thank Kefiloe Siwisa, who is here. Her, her job description is curatorial assistant, but she's been much more of an interlocutor intellectually and practically in the making of this program. Um, I thought I would just read you this uh, small introduction that frames the, these couple of days and then we can get going with today's events. Our world may be post-colonial, yet it has not been decolonized. Colonial powers may have left, but their past presence casts a long shadow, stubbornly occupying our mental, aesthetic and epistemic spaces. Everywhere, colonial wounds lie wide open. If decolonization is another name for freedom, then it can only be unfinished business, a permanent horizon, never reached yet always longed for, as long as human life is structured by relations of race, class, and gender domination. In the face of lingering coloniality, decolonization is not a bygone historical event, it is an everyday task, and hence our title, Always Decolonized. The historical figures of African liberation struggles never separated theory from practice or thinking from action. Theory is a weapon in the battle of self-reinvention. Colonization is like a thick cloud standing between us and ourselves, dispossessing us of our identity. The challenge is to undistort the view, to achieve ownership over one's own image. Independence, what for? First and foremost, to be ourselves, and that's a, a phrase from Amilcar Cabral, uh, on whom we had our first session last night because forum started last night. Um, this is not a selfish exercise, nor is it a petty one. It does not consist of retreating into an exclusive narrow identity. On the contrary, it is based upon solidarity among those who dwell in the margins. And to quote another hero, Sankara, we wish to be the heirs of all the revolutions of the world. One of the main hurdles facing the project of self-determination is the hegemony of Western modes of thinking that have classified everything and everyone on the planet according to their own methods and categories, while producing a linear narrative of progress that pushes other cultures outside of history. Philosophical categories are turned into conceptual kernels of colonial violence, producing a double obliteration, erasing the human diversity of the world, while at the same time denying that erasure. In Morocco, the generation of artists and writers gathered around the journal Souffle from 1966 to 73 knew this 50 years ago. They energetically called for a cultural decolonization without which political decolonization would remain moot. 
In the words of Abdel Latif Labi in 1966, it seems to me that any process of cultural decolonization must begin by questioning the status of the humanities and social sciences in the colonial context. So the, the forum program is a series of panels and screenings and performances that will try to tackle some of these issues modestly, I mean, over a few sessions. Uh, we'll talk about decolonizing knowledge production, um, unlearning Eurocentrism, imagining new futures, uh, etc. And um, so we am very happy to be starting this session with um, the Black Athena Collective. Um, the Black Athena Collective is the two people sitting in front of you, Dawit Petros and Heba Amin. They are each an artist in their own right with separate uh, uh, artistic practices. Um, uh, and they also work as this collective. Uh, Dawit Petros is a visual artist. He was born in Eritrea. He has been recently based in New York City, soon based in Chicago, traveling everywhere in between. <laughs> um, uh, he works mainly in photography and installation, and just like Heba, his work involves a lot of research and also travel. Um, uh, Heba Amin is an Egyptian visual artist. She's also a researcher and a lecturer, currently teaching in Berlin. Um, and uh, both of them work a lot um, on space, on notions of space and territory and, and um, um, uh, construct a kind of critical spatial practice uh, in their work, uh, both individually and, and together as the Black Athena Collective. And the Black Athena Collective, of course, the name of it refers to Martin Bernal's work, Black Athena, which kind of critiques and deconstructs the, his, the, the construction of, um, of, of um, Greece as being white or as being this kind of European place. Um, and so the work of the Black Athena Collective has centered a lot around the Red Sea region in that particular territory of Africa, looking at how it's constructed, how its borders can be deconstructed or looked at otherwise, and, and to construct space critically and differently. Uh, their lecture performance today, which they have worked on especially for this occasion, is titled When Rain Falls on the Mountain of Punt. And we will have a chance to ask questions afterwards. Um, in English or in Arabic or in French, if you wish, uh, and I'll, I can translate um, the questions if need be. Thank you.
From what distance are things clear? It is unclear who burned the Library of Alexandria, and various theories attribute it to different perpetrators, Julius Caesar in 48 BC, Theophilus around 400 AD, and Khalif Omar in 640 AD. It was, however, as we know, the greatest destruction of the ancient world's archive of knowledge, a complete obliteration of history. From what distance are things clear? History is neither the opposite of fiction, nor is it simply fictional. History is a method rather than a truth, an institutional formalization of the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of our lives. We consider every act of telling an act of possibility. We reimagine gestures that draw from the past to clarify the present and illuminate the future. From what distance are things clear? In what is probably the oldest historical text to have survived from ancient Egypt and a significant source for the Old Kingdom, the Palermo Stone contains the earliest hieroglyphic description of an ancient expedition to the land of Punt. It was purchased by Ferdinand Guidano in 1866 and housed in Palermo, Italy since, hence its name. Later, it was published and translated by German Egyptologist Heinrich Schäfer in 1902. Whose trajectory of history do we speak of? We tell ourselves simplified stories for easy consumption. How do we complicate stories, even though they may bring about a sense of discomfort? Whose trajectory of history do we speak of? Known as God's land, Punt was a distant place with which the Egyptians traded for thousands of years. From Punt came, amongst other precious goods, frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh oil was used to anoint the bodies of the pharaohs, a requirement for their souls to pass into the afterlife. Its, located, its location remained a mystery for a long time. We must interrogate the uncertainties of the past while illuminating tensions in the present. History is an, is an enterprise through which the space of truth in fiction is recuperable. How can we hope for autonomy when we still speak the language of our oppressors? Language remains in the realm of representation and fails to relay the authentic experience of the world. We all move within the boundaries of imagined geographies in which what is available is not the truth as an absolute historical measure of the world, but a constructed series of representations. The Red Sea and the narratives of those who move across its waters as both a concept and historical cultural formation is a reality that is imaginatively constructed. Images propose a freedom of geography. They help instigate a break with the aesthetics of colonialism. With the aesthetics of colonialism. Whose trajectory of history do we speak of? One of the most insightful clues to the location of the land of Punt involves the etymology of the word Berber. It has often been assumed, incorrectly, that the appellation originated with the ancient Greeks as a cognate of Barbaros or Barbarian. However, 
The first mention of the term actually dates earlier to the new kingdom of Egypt, when it served as an ethnonym for the Puntites, specifically during the Hatshepsut expedition to Punt. The ancient Egyptians identified their Puntite counterparts as Barberta in hieroglyphic symbols. This is not a non-space. Instructions were heard from the great throne, an oracle from the god himself, Amun-Ra, who had made Hatshepsut the pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt. Departure of the soldiers of the lord of the two worlds traversing the great sea on the good way to the land of the gods, in obedience to the will of the king of the gods, Amen of Thebes. He commanded that there should be brought to him the marvelous products of the land of Punt, for that he loves the queen Hatshepsut above all other kings that have ruled this land. This is not a non-space. October 14th, 2008, Marsa Gawas' site, 23 kilometers south of Safaga, the Red Sea coast, Egypt. We have worked tirelessly for seven seasons. The site at Marsa Gawasis has grown to encompass nearly one kilometer. 55 days of gently prodding into the southern slope of the coral terrace. The picking implement moves slowly through endless layers that alternate between hard rock and crumbling reddish clay. Gently transfer, we're gently transferring each shovelful aside, uncertain of what it yields. Lo, a chasm opens revealing what we've called the fifth cave. This is not a non-space. 45 lots of rope fragments, cordage found in trenches, WG-33, WG-52, WG-32, WG-54, WG-55, and WG-56. Most of rope fragments have average diameter of three to seven millimeters with two strands plied. 90.3% was found in WG-55 and WG-56. Among these fragments, we identified a rope fragment knotted in a reef knot found in WG-53. Nine simple knots and two reef knots found in WG-55. One ending knot found in WG-56 and two simple knots and one ending knot in WG-56. The installation of devices to check the cave's environment will give insight as to its condition and the conservation of its contents. The rope confirms Marsa Gawasis as Sao, the historical port from where seafaring expeditions were sent along the Red Sea to the land of Punt. Migration is home in mobility, and yet exile is uninhabitable. The expedition consisted of about 210 men on five ships. These ships were built with a narrow keel, the stern and prow rising high above the water. Their length was about 70 feet. A raised platform with a balustrade served as a lookout, and under these platforms was shelter for the officers and a hold for the storage of provisions. They traveled at sea for one month before reaching the shores of Punt. My southern boundary is as far as the lands of Punt, claimed Queen Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut protected Egypt's borders and masterminded a highly profitable trading mission to the land of Punt. And yet, the female king almost vanished from Egyptian history altogether.
Hatshepsut would remain lost until almost 3,000 years later, when modern Egyptologists reconstructed her damaged inscriptions and restored her to her rightful dynastic place. Exile is uninhabitable. The Egyptians observed baboons worshipping the sun. Since they were not native to Egypt, colonies of baboons were sent into exile. They became associated with the sun god Amun-Ra and kept in temples. Queen Hatshepsut in particular had an affinity for the animals and her temple filled with, mamun, with baboon mummies later helped unlock the mystery of the land of Punt. Exile is uninhabitable. A team of scientists took hair samples from baboon mummies and examined them by using oxygen isotope analysis. Oxygen isotopes acts a, act as a signal that can inform scientists about the origin of the hairs. In 2010, an analysis of the specimen results led by Professor Nathaniel Domini revealed a high likelihood match with Eastern Somalia and the Eritrea-Ethiopia corridor as the place of origin further suggesting this region as the source of exports to ancient Egypt. Domini further pinpoints the harbor of Massawa in Eritrea as the likely landing point of the Egyptian expeditions of Punt. Depending on the environment where an animal lived, the ratio of various isotopes of oxygen will be different. Oxygen tends to vary as a function of rainfall and the water composition of plants and seed explains Professor Domini. What I drank did not quench me. I'm thirsty, bring me water. I'm thirsty, bring me water. I'm thirsty, bring me water. What I drank did not quench me. Bring me water from Adi Khumen. Bring me water from Adi Khumen. Bring me water from Adi Khumen. Bring me water from Da'arit. Bring me water from Da'arit. Bring me water from Da'arit. Bring me water from Anseba. Bring me water from Anseba. Bring me water from Anseba. Bring me water from Dube and Labba. Bring me water from Dube and Labba. Bring me water from Dube and Labba. I miss the green pastures. 
I miss the green pastures. I miss the green pastures. Bring me water from the spring. Give me water from the river Barka. Separation, Separation is, is painful. painful. Exchange of notes. Up river or down, all that live near the shores or distant from the persistent flow depend directly on the water source. This is not a sustainable arrangement. We speak as one nation, not three. What I drank did not quench me. What I drank did not quench me. Cultural influences and dialogue move in multiple directions. The Arabic word ghurba describes the everywhere and nowhere meaning of boundaries. Derivative of the Arabic word for stranger, it addresses at once the absence from the homeland as well as a deep yearning for belonging to the homeland. The nation state is in fact contrived. There is nothing natural or self-evident about attachment to the nation, which is on the contrary established, legitimized, and maintained by complex cultural practices and institutions. Growing transnational flows across borders have created a wealth of new levels of membership and affiliation, operating within and across territorial borders, such that national borders are being destroyed as people cross them. Gorba. 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 The nation is an idol. The nation is an idol. The nation is an idol. We speak as one nation, not three. Distance is not an obstacle. The nation is an idol and distance is not an obstacle. The nation is a specific form of knowledge. Maps growing ever more real are much less true. A mapping not of territory, but of its passages. A mapping not of a territory, but its passages. A mapping not of a territory, but its passages. These are cart cartographies of convenience. Very great lading of the ships with the marvels of the land of Punt, and with all the good woods of Tanotur, with heaps of Kami of Anna, with trees producing green Anna, with ebony and pure ivory, with gold and green agats found in the land of the Amu, with blocks of the wood tasheps, with ahem perfumes, with tasem baboons, and with hides of the panthers of the south. Never since the beginning of the world have the like wonders been brought by any king. Notations are abstract machines capable of producing new configurations out of given materials. Architectural drawings as notations operate beyond the mimetic function of painting or sculpture. As notations, they can be approached as analogous to musical scores or scripts. In this way, notations bear a high specificity and arbitrariness, which is to say the notational can be analyzed in relationship to established rules, while making possible a loose collective of interpretive frameworks. These are cartographies of convenience. 
a notation used as such, as an artifact from which multiple interpretive frameworks operate, describes possible relationships among elements. For example, physical movements across a landscape and the traces of tracks rendered. This is not just an abstract model of how things behave in the world, but a map of possibilities in the world, a map of possible worlds. Notations conceived in this manner enable multiple interpretations by pointing outwards and highlighting possible relations of matter and information. Notations are not fixed schemas, types, formal paradigms, but placeholders that can become instructions for action. These are cartographies of convenience. And what of the archeology span of the image? The map is intended to mirror the world, but which is the hand that holds the mirror? The map inscribes a pattern of knowing. The map enforces a specific view. To name place is to announce control of meaning. Is the act of naming a place always to announce control? Can the inscription of place be separated from acts of annexation and dominance? The land as visual space is nameless, to be inhabited by the land. Lines on maps were decided thousands of kilometers away. Figures on maps, boundaries of territories, were arbitrarily decided thousands of kilometers away. They continue to exert profound impact on the structural inequalities, contorted nationalisms, and conflicts of the region. These are cartographies of convenience. I adhere to boundaries when they benefit me. I deny the boundaries when they benefit you. These are cartographies of convenience. Overlapping territories and intertwined histories displace fixed concepts of dwelling. When rain falls on the mountain of Punt. Every living organism must drink water, and water consists of two elements, hydrogen and oxygen. Both of these elements can exist in various isotopes with slightly different chemical properties. The oxygen isotopic signature of a spring can be unique and is controlled by the geology and location of a spring. By comparing the results of ancient hair samples with hair samples of modern animals, researchers conclude that most isotopic similarities can be, can be found with animals and baboons coming from eastern Ethiopia and Eritrea. Can one resist without predictable opposing? What are subtle forms of resistance that gain traction because they're difficult to locate, name, and combat? The answer to a myth of force is not necessarily counterforce. For if the myth predicts counterforce, counterforce reinforces the myth. The science of mythography teaches us that a subtle counter is to subvert and revise the myth. The highest propaganda is the propagation of new mythology. When rain falls on the mountain of Punt. When rain falls on the mountain of Punt. What I drank did not quench me. What I drank did not quench me.
Thank you very much, Heban David. I, I suggest we move directly to taking questions from the audience. And you can breathe and think of questions. Hi. Hi there. My name is Richard. It's just a very simple question about the ropes that were in the images. Were they part of the Egyptian, the Queen's the ex, ex, uh, expedition, preserved? It's just a, a factual question. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a particular region that was excavated quite quite recently. Do you remember the date? Between 2001 and 2008. Yeah, so quite recent. And they discovered these ropes that were in very good shape, quite intact. And they um, suspect that they are part of this expedition that was sent by Queen Hatshepsut. And that that is what confirmed where the port in Egypt was that then went to the port in um, Eritrea. We like simple questions. <laughs> so, your, so just uh, actually listening to that previous question, is was that your jumping point? You know, what, I, I know the concept of migration and, and oppression, colonization, all that, but in this particular work for this particular choice of, of uh, material, was what specific event or specific uh, object or something decide, took you in that direction on that particular story? Well, in fact, it, it, it starts, and, and Dawit, maybe you can c continue, but it starts with um, a presentation that Dawit and I gave in Eritrea um, two years ago now. In 2015. And while we were um, at a conference, we met um, Professor Nathaniel Domini, who presented his research about um, the isotopes of, of the baboons. And again, this was also a very recent discovery. In fact, the land of Punt, um, Egyptologists had always come across these inscriptions and images that refer to the land of Punt, which is uh, referred to as the land of God, according to the ancient Egyptians. And it's where they received many of the goods um, that they traded. But it was never really clear where this land was. And there were many theories. Some theorized that it was in the Horn of Africa. Some theorized that it was in Yemen. Some re uh, theorized it was in um, Saudi Arabia. But in fact, the discovery of the isotopes of the baboon that then linked it and matched it to another isotope in specifically near Massawa in Eritrea is what then assured scientists that in fact the land of Punt is probably somewhere in that region. Um, so our starting point in fact is we're looking at narratives um, that address the kind of mobility and migration in the Red Sea region as once upon a time being the center of the world. And of course it now has become a sort of 
black hole, um, especially when we talk about contemporary migration, um, it's never contextualized within this very long and rich history of movement and mobility. And so we felt like this was a really good story um, to address you know, how far back this kind of trade and mobility is happening in this region. Um, and to also address the problematic structures and the diversity of the narrative of ancient, um, ancient Egypt in particular, right? It's, a, it's a, quite a controversial uh, history. Um, and so this was just to sort of illustrate the ways in which these things are intertwined um, and converge and have always intertwined and converged. to that is the importance of Egypt has such a significant historical presence in that part of the world. And so it was really important for us to be able to address a narrative that shifts the possibility of what is only perceived as being a mythological possibility into the realm, into the realm of the actual. And it begins to close the loop of, of, of back and forth movement that is happening not just north to south, but south to north, so that the very way in which Egyptians, um, historical dynastic Egyptians, identify or establish their own sense of who they are in the world is contingent on these very locations. So this is the land of their, uh, the land of the ancestors. This is where they derive from, and so I think that it has a way of of complicating. The, the narrative that I think, the easier narrative of how you have a singular PowerPoint within the region. Um, thank you for a fascinating talk. I'd just like to ask about the images that were scrolling behind you. Uh, could you perhaps mention if they came from a particular archive, the the old black and white photographs, and for instance, this one, if it was taken by yourselves? Um, all the above. <laughs> um, in fact, a very important part of our project is to rework um, archival material. And a lot of the images are images that um, sit in our archives and haven't seen the light of day. And so as part of our project, we're really trying to rework and kind of bring life to them, to, re to narrate them. So a lot of the images that you've seen are sort of reworkings of, of these kinds of images that we're kind of adding layers of meaning to from our own interpretation. A lot of them are images that we uh, ourselves have taken through um, traveling to these particular sites. Um, and then others are, are just plain, flat-out archive images that we're, we're digging out from archives in Italy um, and um, in, in Berlin and in, where else have we drawn from? And in the U.S., yeah. So it's not one specific archive. Um, we're working, yeah, with multiple archives that are focusing specifically on the Red Sea region. Hi, could you tell me about the image that, that we were you drawing the image? Yes, well, actually, there was, we were both drawing. Oh, okay. So, so would you talk a little bit about those images? Part of what we're doing is really thinking about um, sort of abstract, uh, you know, extracting notational elements that appear on mapping structures and finding a way in which the notational element itself can become a landscape rather than simply alluding to a landscape. And so the videos are these you know are these short vignettes in which part of what we're doing is 
pointing to that, again, pointing to the possibility in which these notational sort of the, these inscriptions and mark makings can become right can become um, can become spaces rather than, rather than simply being secondarily sort of located or operating as markers to a space right so that's what drive that's uh, the, the series of those the series of those short videos I mean, we're also thinking of them a little bit like blueprints, right? Because we're dealing with a lot of images of architecture and, and we're looking at also not just um, images, but um, um, architectural renderings of, of um, different kinds of architectures that can then also be used as a metaphor for migration in this region. And so it was a way to kind of find a language in which we can explore visually um, these kinds of images and, and these kinds of happenings um, uh, of combining movement with architecture of something that's often considered st static and yet there's a very rich kind of nomadic culture in this region and so architectures are obviously also moving, not just people. Um, and so these are, are uh, is a sort of language we're trying to develop um, to articulate these kinds of things through notations. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> so um, I. <laughs> um, hello. Um, no, I'm really. I love your refra I love the refraining aspects of what you were doing, and especially cartographies of convenience that came through really strongly. Um, I was just interested in the idea of convenience and whose convenience, and also thinking about cartography from, cartographies from the perspective of Eritrea and how it's in flux in so many ways. And so, is it not convenient for a country that's in flux? It was what not convenient? Specifically within the case of Eritrea, it's the borders of all of those countries are in flux. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the if you look at the um, the historical antagonisms between Sudan and Egypt mm -hmm. around the Halaib Triangle, the logic that draw the, the logic that makes right the the historical cartographical sort of exercises that make that conflict that bring that conflict into the present are very similar to that which drove Eritrea and Ethiopia to war in 98, right, the, the Badame Triangle. And so I think part of what we're trying to sort of think about is, and there's that common refrain of, we speak as one nation, not three, right? And um, I just want to add to that because that's a direct quote um, from President Sisi um, quite recently that he gave um, in meeting um, uh, the leaders of, of these countries in this region and talking about the crisis of the flow of the Nile. Um, so again, addressing, is this really a congruent and cohesive region? Um, in fact, in, in kind of a contemporary political situation, we're seeing the opposite of that. So we were trying to throw hints at these con contemporary conflicts and struggles that are occur occurring around bodies of water and movement of water by contextualizing it within the historical narrative of the region. So it doesn't become a dominant part of our, of, of our telling of the story, um, but it's alluded to in, in many ways. So this is why we end here with, this, with, with the dam <laughs> um, um, and it's and it's it's just at the start of this conflict, right? We don't know where this conflict is going, and it could potentially be disastrous. <laughs> um, and we don't know, so so we have to find a way in which we narrate that as well. And I think Zina and I would also say, and while also acknowledging the way in which all of these countries individually, Eritrea, Sudan, 
Somalia, all of the countries in the, in the region shift in accordance to how the colonial agreements benefit their particular claim. So today we're against this claim, tomorrow we'll be for the claim, right? So that's, that sort of, I mean, that's the logic that we're trying to also point to. Well, also, where do these conflicts stem from? It's, it's from the mapping of, you know, colonizers, right? A lot of these, you know, sp Dawid specifically mentioned the Halayb Triangle, a, a, a particular territory that both Egypt and Sudan are fighting over. And they're fighting over it because the British drew maps in two ways. <laughs> and each way, you know, attributes that particular territory to a different country. And that conflict remains. So again, it's, it's how do we talk about these contemporary situations and understand where they're actually coming from. Uh, wonderful, a real pleasure to watch this. I, I just, I don't really have a question, but I have a feeling that I would like to ask you to comment on somehow. And this feeling has to do with uh, a moment in your discourse where you brought up the baboon tests, isotopes, and I felt a, a kind of pain. So I was wondering, and, and there's no way, this is not a, how do you say, a, a hidden uh, criticism at all. It's, I really truly wonder how we can get out of the problem of the relationship with science and the human and non-human question, of course. So to see these, to think about these baboons being taken and enslaved kind of upset me. Secondly, um, my fear is, what do we do if we are using the same technique of legitimation of a truth, which is then could be used in another way, you know, to, to calculate the isotopes of this or that. So this is no answer I have, but what does this comment of a feeling I have suggest in you? Well, I mean, I think we have the exact same feeling, right? And I think this is why we're bringing these things forward in an attempt to kind of problematize these issues and to throw questions out there as opposed to giving kind of definitive claims. The baboon story is very problematic, and this is specifically why we framed it as baboons in exile, right? These uh, colonies of baboons in exile as opposed to kind of just a, another trade object or artifact. Um, and, and so how can we then use those stories, again, within this framework that is already problematic, but we have to address it, I think, in order to kind of move past it. And I think it's a sort of experiment. I don't know if that's something that we can actually do, um, but this is why we're working with ar archival imagery and attempting to kind of uh, shift it and um, play with it and kind of alter it to see if we can somehow um, shift those narratives. The same discomfort you have is, I think we should all have, right? Because the extent to which, the, we're very conscious that of the knowledge that we're using is the very knowledge that we're, criti that, that we're, criti that we're criticizing. It creates the very sets of problems. Um, but I think in terms of how we perform possible models of history, there is no hierarchy in terms of how the information is being presented. Very few people are being, um, quoted directly, right? There's, there's a way in which information is being given, um, and a lot of it contradicts itself if you really listen to it, 
right? So part of it is that the discomfort is to say that there isn't, right, right, that there isn't uh, a singular overarching, overarching truth. But we use the tools at the very time, you know, at the very moment while we are uh, that we're recognizing the problematics of using the tool, and so that in itself becomes, uh, you know, becomes a way of dealing with that discomfort. And that's particularly important because, especially when you're dealing with the history of this region and especially ancient Egypt, it is a sort of singular narrative, and it's a very problematic narrative. And I think it's only in kind of recent history that we've begun to kind of address. Um, these multiple narratives and and the source of which these narratives were presented to us it was you know European archaeologists who who kind of framed um, who created the framework of these of these histories um, so how do we break those apart and and not necessarily provide an alternative singular narrative but multiple narratives all at once ask since that is a question you spoke earlier about developing a visual language mm -hmm. to talk about these things and I was wondering about how you view the role of language as in linguistic language in in the work obviously you, there were different registers mm -hmm. of language I mean visual and spoken in what you said um, from the scientific to the poetic and all of that and I was wondering about that kind of linguistic diffraction and how, how you view it and how you work on it, how you construct this between the visual and the linguistic? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the visual language is important. I mean, I think it's, it's um, significant, uh, the, the particular archives that we're working with. Um, and just to kind of briefly precede that, um, the answer to, the, to that question, you know, these archives are also controlled under a very kind of particular register, right? Um, and so we often, as, as locals from these regions, don't have access to our own archives. So it is significant that a lot of these archives, let's say, exist in, in Italy or in Germany. Um, and, and the access that we're given to these visuals are also, are also then controlled. Um, and in many cases, there's many instances, in, in fact, in which um, you know, we're not given access to these kinds of archives. So, that, so first of all, having these kinds of images is already a feat, right? When we, when we were um, uh, researching in Eritrea, we came across a lot of images that, as I said, had never seen the light of day. Um, and it was kind of coincidence how we came across them. So it became then a very important part of our project to, to utilize those in multiple ways that can kind of, you know, um, branch out, um, you know, in, in, in different ways, I guess. And I think in terms of the, the, the shifting registers, it's the extent, part of what we struggle with is how much we break apart the images before they move out into the world. So we've only really done um, a singular book. And the book is comprised of images, right, archival, all of which have gone radical transformation from, um, from the, the way in which we receive them, right? So I think a part of the limitations that we deal with it, and a part of the limitations that were imposed on what we could do with these, uh, with these images and with this information was how much we would, how legible they would be relative to, you know, relative to the way in which they were initially given. Um, so that struggle, you know, I mean, that struggle of where do we locate it and how do we locate it there is something that we're 
right, that we're constantly sort of thinking about. And so this as a context becomes an important place, this type of a presentation becomes an important context in which we can share a lot of this information, right, share a lot of the, of the, of the images without Right, without a sense of having it circulate beyond this type of a certain context. So this is one register, the images that go into the book are another register, the images that go into various publications are another register. Um, so really thinking about those different levels of, um, of, of transformation of images. Well, and specifically addressing the mobility of images themselves, right? Because we're kind of framing our project as a project that addresses migration and movement. And so within that idea is also the movement of images and so how how do the meanings of the images also then change as they move um, as they kind of exist in different geographical locations as they start to kind of be spread in these different formats um, so there is that also level of, of mobility and how do we articulate that through language I mean that's that's a difficult that's a difficult challenge It's uh, just an impression I got. Uh, once I was in the Senegal and I was uh, asking a photographer much older than, uh, than us um, um, about his uh, subject on his work and he was saying, oh, it's important to keep on on this uh, uh, colonial, post-colonial discourse because we have to work about, we have to keep the memory. And uh, uh, he thought he looked to the to, to the ceiling and said, "Oh, because uh, the history of Africa is not written before colonialism." Do you agree with it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure that's the question right. you want to ask? <laughs> yeah. But it's a complicated question and it's a loaded question because it's. Um, we're also talking about historical expeditions, many of which also have um, elements of force, and parts of these narratives are, are what are, you know are uh, are being articulated here. So it's there are different modes of force and conquest. So when we say um, what levels of history, what right, what modes of history begin to operate once once uh, the European colonialism comes in? I think that that is one mode of one mode of telling. Um, but I think I would like to think that part of what we're doing here is pointing out to uh, to the possibility and the existence of these much longer histories that also have some of these dynamics of force and conquest. But wait a minute, I mean, we're talking about a civilization that has some of the oldest records <laughs> of, you know, pictorial and linguistic evidence, right? So, no, but this is the entire continent, it's not just ancient Egypt, right? That's just a kind of window into kind of a broader, a broader thing. Yeah. But I think this is part of right the brainwashing of where history begins, right? Um, it yeah. starts at a particular point, and this is precisely what this project attempts to do. 
is to kind of break apart these dominant structures of history um, um, and address ones that have been written out of history. I mean, that's also, also the title of our project comes from this idea of what narratives have been written out of history. So the Black Athena Collective addresses, you know, the, the narratives that have been written out of ancient Greece by European history. So, um, so this is a, a very, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this point up because this is very particular to what we're trying to do. Um, is to kind of broaden the scope of even the definition of history itself, right, as a Western concept. You know, how do we break that apart? Hi, thank you very much. Um, uh, just picking up on, on this very contentious, I'm happy to say contentious discussion about what history is, uh, makes me think of two things. The first is the great Pan-Africanist W.B.E.B. Du Bois writing about the propaganda of history and he said, they wrote so much because they saw so little. <laughs> eh? And uh, what I appreciated about your, your work and, and this presentation was lo actually looking at the archives that um, certain kinds of historians and anthropologists and, and archaeologists looked at and seeing something else, which I think is key, as well as pointing to the loss of the Alexandria Library and, and so forth as key to our uh, enduring ignorance in the present. My question is uh, whether you are um, at all anxious um, about having geography become sort of static, a sort of static background onto which certain kinds of mobility and migration might be projected. And the reason that question came to mind was it seemed like cartography got stuck a little bit in what I heard, so I'm not saying what you intended, but what I heard, as a kind of always already, you know, fixing of colonial relations, whereas I think there's a whole counter-cartography alive always in the world. So. I think my, oh, there was that moment where, um, you know, we talk about inhabiting the land versus being inhabited by the land. So I think it's, for me, it's beginning to sort of point to, right, beginning to sort of point to Another possibility, another way in which one is or is not disassociated from, from a particular terrain, right? That transcends cartography somehow, right? That establishes a mode of understanding or knowing a place that is not contingent on that structure, which is you're going to divide it, you're going to establish a very particular relationship between where you are and where it is, right? And where it is, because if does that make do you understand what I mean? contradictions that you two are exploring, isn't there also a contra contradictory dynamic that we could understand as being cartographic, which is not the, you know, colonial or neoliberal imposition of coordinates, yeah. 
onto people and places and resources. Well, that's I think my that's question. exactly what we allude to, right? Because we're going to histories that precede these colonial constructs. And that's exact. That's precisely the point that we're trying to address, is that these regions were fluid, right? There was constant moving movement going back and forth between these regions. And we often discuss the problems of history in a contemporary context within the construct of the nation state. We have a very difficult time imagining beyond that, that, that construct. I mean, just to kind of give a, an example to pinpoint that issue, this idea of identity um, in relation to ancient Egypt, right? And these kind of definitive claims of who wants to claim that history. And when in fact our argument is that there is no one answer and there is no one definitive claim because geographies were not, you know, divided um, in, in the ways in which they are today. And so I think we are addressing cartographies and, and these colonial constructs of cartography as a way to try to erase that, as a way to try to kind of um, think of, of what other constructs might be at this point, um, because it's, it's a very kind of recent, it's a very recent history, if that makes sense. <laughs> happy, happy to. <laughs> Sound like a broken record. <laughs> so I'll think more. So clearly we're not answering your questions, so we can we can have a further conversation. There's a question here. Um, it's a slightly more broader question about the decision to collaborate. If I'm not mistaken, you met on the was it the Trans Africa uh, project, um, which I know didn't go all that well for you, but I'm interested in the strategies and methodologies of collaborating, but also some of the compromises, because you both work as individual artists. Mm -hmm. So what are those intersections, and when do they not always work? Mm. <laughs> wow, how do you know about this history? <laughs> Who told you? <laughs> yeah. Um, we met and we worked. Dawit microphone. <laughs> I'm at peace with, with that project because it made this possible. Um, and I think a lot of the questions that we're thinking about in, in the project and that are informing what we do arose in terms of how we were positioned as we were traveling through West Africa North Africa and moving into Europe along a very particular trajectory and then being positioned as people you know as as East Africans um, against that particular route and so I think it was it was absolutely necessary for me um, to you know to figure out the questions that weren't being asked um, in that in that project and then to begin to so we were, ha we were constantly engaging with one another and then it just made sense at a certain point to, uh, to come together and think about them more formally. Well, I think also um, Dawit and I came together in frustration, in fact, <laughs> in, in um, the ways in which we are, we are located as, as artists from the continent. Um, and we felt like we needed a very different language to address the things that we really, really wanted to pinpoint. And we, we found a gap in which we were hoping to kind of experiment and, and explore that. Um, so we were just very lucky in the fact that we kind of matched and we saw eye, eye to eye with the ways in which we wanted to approach this. I mean, having said that, it is a very difficult thing because we do, 
We do have our individual practices and we do live across continents uh, on opposite ends of the earth. And that makes it a very difficult, um, uh, makes it very difficult to collaborate. But on the other hand, it becomes part of the concept of our project and um, kind of really making geography uh, a very central point um, to our exploration and, and try really trying to tear it apart and you know, maybe find other, other ways um, so, so we really see it as a sort of experiment, as a sort of lab. And again, we're not here to kind of give answers, um, but to, to provoke and to put forth further questions. I just wanted to ask you about the movement of movement, because you've mentioned notation quite a few times, and it obviously makes me think about choreography. And in a way, like, uh, notation on cartographies are also forms of choreographies of people and resources and living things that aren't people, you know, all, all, all kinds of choreographies. So if you were, I mean, I d you know, this might be a really dumb question, but in terms of translating, the, translating this kind of research on movement into movement, what would be a kind of counter choreographic movement translation of this into, into that or that into this somehow? if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we're looking for a counter movement to movement. I think on the contrary, we're really trying to emphasize the idea of movement. And so a very important part of the project is, yes, we're doing a lot of research, but we're also embedding ourselves in these locations and we're also traveling, we're moving through these locations. So important for us is to not kind of speak from afar, but to kind of really engage with the territories that we're talking about. And so traveling is a very big part of our project and that's, that's integral, that's important. Um, and so not just talking about movement, but we're embedding ourselves in a sort of kind of trajectory of movement. So I don't know that we want to counter. I guess just like what would a choreography mm. of the same notation be like mm. in the context of the fact that those notations were choreographies in the mm -hmm. first place? I mean, I guess that's what we're also trying to, you know, to <laughs> discover, right? <laughs> I think my response. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I think about it as a counter uh, counter choreography, but part of what was really informing, um, part of the frustrations that I felt when we were moving through incredibly complicated spaces was the reductive way in which complex events were were being um, mm. were being represented image wise, mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me that's the counter. I mean, that's the counter on a right on a mm. collective basis and on an individual basis is attempting to break apart the language with which you're either expected to, or it's easier to deal, right, to, to examine a certain question. Um, or the language that you've been indoctrinated with, right? Because I think that's also very difficult to break from. Sorry, Debbie, I didn't No, 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 but, but I mean, all of that has, is embedded within a choreography of image. Mm -hmm. Right in a circulation of a certain type of image, so I think that would be the response. I mean, it's because this took a long time for us to figure out how to, you know, it, uh, it took us a few, I mean, a few years to really figure out what it was we were trying to um, to deal with. Mm. But much of it was driven by a reaction against what we knew we did not want to be doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you very much, Heba and Dawit, and thank you for...
for the generosity of your responses and for taking the risk to present uh, a new and in-progress work. We're looking forward to seeing what's next. Uh, we resume in about 20 minutes at 3.30 with Grada Quilomba, and I hope you will all be back here. <laughs>